Our good Lord, we pray once again that your word might be a lamp unto our feet and that it might be a light unto our path and that by it we might see Jesus and we might be transformed by him. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So as you read through the Bible, of all the important words that are contained within, one of, one of the most important words that we have been given is this word, the Hebrew word, shalom. And, and we translate it as peace, but our conception of peace is often simply a ceasefire or a not fighting. And so if you are not at war with someone, then you are at peace with someone. But the word in the scriptures, especially in the Old Testament, is a word that is much richer and much fuller in its meaning. And so Cornelius Plantinga, in his book, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, describes it like this. He says, Shalom is the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. Shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. It's a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied. Natural gifts are fruitfully employed. It's a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. Shalom is what we were made for, it's what we long for, and it's what we all hope for in the deepest parts of us. As Nehemiah, the writer of this work, looks around 450 years before Jesus, what he sees is not shalom. What he sees is something very different. What he sees before him is, is a city in ruins, broken down and in disarray. But more than that, beneath the city in ruins, what he sees is a people that are in ruins. And so you could say that behind these broken down walls is a broken down people, is the anti Shalom. And the book of Nehemiah is really this call to work. But more than that, it's a call to a specific type of work, and that is the work of rebuilding, rebuilding walls and rebuilding lives. And what it does is it gives us a picture of this bigger work that Jesus himself has come to do, this work of what we call the kingdom. And so it gives us these signposts that, that point to something greater, a reality that here and now we live in and we are a part of. <clears throat> and so last week we, we saw how Nehemiah received news of the broken downness of the city and of the people and the deep impact it has on him. And now this week it comes to this call of action of, of what is he going to do? How is he going to respond? What will happen next? And so I want to read this text. It's a longer passage, and so I'd ask that you just stick with me. There, there's a lot here. It's going to take me about three to four minutes, but these are God's words given to us. And so let's hear what he has. Beginning in verse 1, 
In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence, and the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. And I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah." And let a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Then I came to the governor's of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen, but when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days, and then I arose in the night, I and just a few with me, and I told no one of what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There's no animal with me but the one on which I rode, and I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. And then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, Let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. And also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat, the Hornite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, And Geshev the Arab heard of it. They jeered at us and despised us and says, What is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. 
This is the word of the Lord. Two movements I want us to focus on that Jeremiah participated in and I think it serves as somewhat of a model for us. The first is to have courage and go, and the second is to rise up and build. So have courage and go, and rise up and build. So first, have courage and go. Notice where our passage begins. It begins with these words, in the month of Nisan. Now, that matters because if you remember from last week, it was in the month of Chislev that Nehemiah first heard this report about the state of the city, about how it is lying in ruins, about how the people are in disarray. And when he heard that news, said we read that he wept and he mourned and he grieved and he fasted and he prayed. It was something that, that went deep into his heart and moved him and bothered him greatly so that he pled that God might do something about it. But where we are in the month of Nisan is we are four months later. And so over a hundred days have passed from that time in which he has first received this news to where he finds himself before the king. And so most likely over a hundred days of mourning, times of fasting, times of praying, times of pleading. And now the time has come to to move beyond and to move into this state of action, of seeing this need and entering into it. He wants to go help. He wants to go rebuild. Before him is this choice. Do I stay or do I go? We remember from last week that he's the cupbearer to the king, which was a place of security, a place of affluence, a place of influence. So the question before him is going to be, do do I stay where I am in my position of comfort and security, or, or do I step out and take a risk and leverage all that I have in order to move towards seeking the welfare of another people? He decides to go. He says, I want to leverage, but he needs help from the king. And so there comes a time where he is before the king. His face is sad. The king notices and asks the question, what's wrong with you? And this strikes fear because he realizes how much he is stepping out on a limb and risking in making this request before the king and how fragile his situation is. The stakes are high. And so he tells the reason behind his sadness, and the king asks, so what are, you, what are you asking? What is it that you were requesting? And I love how he, he shoots this quick prayer to God. Help me in this moment. What I'm about to say, what I'm about to do, I, I'm leaping out here, and I need you to catch me with what I'm about to say and what I'm about to ask for. And then he makes the request, send me to the city that I might rebuild it. I think all of us have been in these situations as kids where we're hanging around with our friends and then a responsible adult comes around and needs help in some sort of way and asks this group, who, is going, who would like to help me? And there is this, this um, cascading chorus of not it, not it, not it, not it, not it, not it. I, I see that even nowadays with, with my own kids. Uh, back in the day when I used to do it, it's, it's a race, it's a competition. It's seeing who can be the first person to avoid responsibility. Who can be the first person to avoid entering in, working, taking up action, taking up a cause? Who can be the first person to be assured that they stay out of the mess? 
But here, when we hear that help is needed, desperately needed, we hear two very different words from Nehemiah. He doesn't pipe up and say, not it. His two words are, send me. I don't want to I don't want to run away from the ruin that I see. I don't want to run away from the brokenness that I see, but I want to move towards it. I want to step into it. I want to take risks. Renowned professor from Harvard who spent Henry Nowen, who spent his his later years working in a facility of mentally handicapped, giving of himself. He says it like this. He says, compassion asks us to go where it hurts, to enter into the places of pain, to share in brokenness and fear, confusion, and anguish. Who can save a child from a burning house without taking the risk of being hurt by the flames? Who can listen to a story of loneliness and despair without taking the risk of experiencing similar pains in one's own heart and even losing precious peace of mind. In short, who can take away suffering without entering into it? In order for Nehemiah to take away this suffering that he is heartbroken about and grieved over, he realizes that he must leverage himself in order to enter into it. And that brings a question to each of us in terms of which which posture better captures our way of life. Is it not it or is it send me? When when we are bombarded with a a variety of needs and, and opportunities and places in which shalom is not the reality where life seems to be pulling apart and becoming distorted and, and hurting, and when, when we see those, is there a sense of not it? Whatever I can do to step away and to, to preserve what I have, or is there a sense, a posture of, of send me? Where, where is there need? And, and where might my gifts, where might my abilities, where might my experiences best be used in this world to be a part of the solution and not part of the problem. What captures our life individually and what captures our life together. In sending me in this request that Nehemiah says, he, 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 he makes this plead knowing that he is not alone. Verse 8, the king granted me what I asked for. The good hand of my God was upon me. And what I want us to see from that is not simply this idea that, that Nehemiah stepping out of the limb and God's catching up with him to catch him, but this idea that Nehemiah is getting on board with what God is already about. This is what God is passionate about. He is, if you want to know where God is, he is moving into these places of brokenness. He is moving into these places where healing and help and hope is needed. And so Nehemiah is not going somewhere and asking God to catch up with him. It's rather this is where God is and Nehemiah is going where God is at work. And it all starts with having the courage to go. And that brings us to our second point, and that's rise up 
and build. So when Nehemiah, when he arrives, the first thing he does is see for himself with his own eyes just how bad things really are. So it's important to see before offering all these sort of solutions of how he can make the city great and how he can fix people's lives, he slows down in order to see. I think many of us can be so quick to to offer these quick solutions and quick answers when someone has a problem that we can come in on our high horse and say, I've I've got the solution and I'm the one who's going to come and fix it. When sometimes what's first needed is just an entering in and a listening and an asking questions, a slowing down and seeing it through their eyes. I think of Nehemiah just even feeling the stones and, and feeling the ground and seeing everything up close. But once he sees the extent of the ruins, then he is moved to action. Verse 17, you see the trouble that we're in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. And come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And so there is this call from Nehemiah to, to, to come and to join together and to rebuild And their response together as a community is beautiful. Let us rise up and build. And so they strengthen their hands for the good work. There is good work to be done. Let us rise up. Let us get to work. We need strength. Let us strengthen our hands for the task that is ahead of us. Anything worth doing in this life, it takes energy. It takes heart. It takes resources. It will cost us something. But it's critical for us to see in this work of rebuilding, even though the book is titled Nehemiah, it's not Nehemiah who does the rebuilding. This is what chapter 3 is all about. In chapter 3, we see the building effort that goes on. And what we see is really fascinating. If you have time this afternoon, I encourage you to read it because what you see is you see men and women Side by side. You see sons and daughters side by side. You see brothers and sisters side by side. Families and neighbors and friends side by side. One group rebuilds the sheep gate. One group rebuilds the fish gate. One group rebuilds the gate of Yashana. Another group rebuilds the valley gate. Another group rebuilds the dung gate. Another group rebuilds the foundation gate. And Nehemiah records all of this to show that there is a community effort. There is an all-hands-on-deck kind of effort saying, I can't do this work alone. This is a work that we all participate in, from the youngest to the oldest. Men, women, children, brothers, sisters, we are joining together, strengthening our hands for this good work. It's a team effort. So if you've been following Georgia football at all this year, you've probably heard Coach Kirby Smart talk about wreaking havoc. So wreaking havoc is not just a a slogan like go get them. It's kind of generic. But havoc, he actually has a definition for havoc and what qualifies as havoc. And so havoc... So havoc is defensive plays that result in negative yards... Forced fumbles, sacks, tackles for loss, passes broken up, and interceptions. And he wants his team to increase their havoc rate. So they track 
all of the havoc that they produce. And he's talking about it all the time. So when they have meetings, he will call on individuals and they will have to recite what havoc is and what their havoc rate is. So Coach Smart says, everybody in the room from the highest SAT to the lowest has got to stand up and give us what havoc rate is. If they understand what it is, they know we're trying to cause it. And one of their better defensive players said this. He said, I kid you not, literally every day we talk about havoc. Every day. They talk about it because they want it to get into their bloodstream. And what they've seen happen is there's been kind of this movement of we talk enough about havoc and chaos and destruction. Then then what we see is that they become passionate about it and they become intentional about pursuing it, that it becomes something that they don't even have to think twice about. When I think about the church, when I think about God's family, uh, we are supposed to be just as passionate, uh, just as intentional, uh, not, not about wreaking havoc, but about repairing havoc. Think about other words for havoc that could be used. Calamity, chaos, confusion, disruption, mayhem, damage, disorder, wreckage. Now think about the opposites of havoc. Peace, blessing, wholeness, healing, harmony, clarity, order, restoration. What if every Sunday as your pastor, I started calling on people and said, where, where did you repair havoc this week? I said, what is, what is, what is, what is, uh, What's healing look like? And then how have you participated in what God is doing? What have, what have you done? How have you entered in? How have you repaired havoc? I was reading the other day about a, a story of a church in Reynosa, Mexico. And it's in one of the poorest parts of the city, in an already poor city, uh, in, a, in a neighborhood that's just it's run down, Crime, violence, poverty, and there's a group of people there that are part of a church that are, are wanting, to, wanting to bring some sense of shalom and some sense of healing and restoration, uh, both spiritually and also physically and materially. And one of the ways in which they're doing it is, is by filling potholes. So they notice that there are these potholes everywhere in the streets and there's no one there there's no money, there's no resources, there's no people to fix this. And so what they've done is they've started taking these one by one and they fill them with cement. And then they, they have some of the kids in the neighborhood, they, they collect these, these gather bits, these broken glass, bottle caps, shattered ceramics. And what the kids do is they, they make these mosaics in the wet cement. And so what, what you have here is this, this beautiful simple and very, very small picture of people being a part of seeing something that is broken and moving it towards something that is beautiful. Uh, wreaking havoc is, is digging those holes and not caring about it. Repairing havoc is looking at something and saying, how can I fix this and make it beautiful? How can I bring life to the things where death seems to only reign? 
And that's, that's a question for our church as we do our own inspection, as we look around and, and are part of this bigger work that Jesus is doing in the work of his kingdom. Where are we, our hands, our feet, our voices, our lives, where are we joining together to bring new life? And while chapter 2 and 3 is all about the walls, what we're going to see moving forward in these chapters is that underneath these walls is a people and there's going to be need for not just transformation of these walls, but transformation of hearts and minds and lives as well. But, But all of this happens in Nehemiah right here because somebody came. Somebody came to seek the welfare of the city. Now, as we kind of wrap up even just for today, the the takeaway in all of this today and for each of these weeks as we're in Nehemiah is not simply look at Nehemiah, look at what a great leader that he was. He did this work of rebuilding and we should rebuild as well. But it's to go back and see that Nehemiah points to another person and his work points to another work, that it's, it's a shadowy picture of this bigger kingdom work that God is doing Nehemiah is a picture of a greater king who has come to seek the welfare of a greater city, a greater people with greater power. And so Jesus is this greater Nehemiah who who saw needs and instead of saying, not it, Jesus said to the Father, send me. He came to seek the welfare of the city with courage. And as he came into this city, we wreaked havoc on him, nailing him to a cross, crucifying him, killing the very one who was sent to give us life. And it's that very sacrifice that God mysteriously and beautifully and powerfully uses to be the source of this hurricane of shalom that is happening, that it's this epic event that begins to turn the tides that creates the source and the power of this new kingdom of healing and hope and restoration. As the prophet said long ago, Isaiah, by his wounds we are healed. And our calling is to rebuild with him and his kingdom work and to be a part of what he's doing. And so... As we think about where we as a church and individuals go from here, it's the sense of are we, are we a not it kind of people or are we a send me kind of people? And there's this invitation, invitation to, to have courage and to go and to rise up and to build. Let's pray together. Our good Father, we thank you that your good hand is upon us for good. We thank you so much that Jesus didn't stay in his position of comfort and glory and beauty and worship where he was revered and loved and adored and stood in awe of, yet he forsook all of that in order to come here and to be reviled and to be beaten, to be rejected and betrayed and to be crucified because he came to seek the welfare of us. We thank you that it's through his death that we receive life, and we pray that that life would spread through our hearts, through our church, through our city, through our nation, and through the world, that we, as Jesus prayed, your your kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. It's in his name we pray. Amen.